It's meant to be opened, explored, pursued. It's made to be read, reread, applied, and used. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, with wisdom, life-changing, to lead us on. It's made for guidance, to teach us His ways, showing what's true, right, and worthy of praise. It's meant to be hidden, deep in our hearts, daily examined as the morning starts. No greater glimpse of God do we have, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. All right, well, good morning. Uh, great to have you here. Great to have the sun out. At least it was when I came here a while ago. I hope it still is. But uh, came across a, a statement this week that um, didn't have any uh, author to it, but I love this. Truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Think about that. Truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Uh, that, that's uh, quite a statement. And uh, as you think about that, one of the things, uh, first question I had, okay, that I, I, I agree with that, but how do we know the truth? How do we understand what the truth is? That's the critical part of understanding what truth is. And... Um, uh, I, the answer, of course, we talked about that last week, is the Bible, the Word of God. Absolutely. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, a verse that you may know, a familiar verse in many ways. All Scripture, that's the Bible, the Word of God, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Yes, God's spoken words, what we call the Bible, scripture, God's truth. It is the word of God that tells us what's right, what's true. I read from our statement of faith last week that says this, we believe the Bible is the final authority. Folks, listen, when you say that, when you say you believe that, that that's huge. That's not just something we just Utterly, you know, we utter and go through it and, all right, yeah, that, okay, I can say that. No, this is big. We believe the Bible is the final authority for judging what we believe and how we should live. Do you? You don't have to shake your hand or ra head or raise your hand. I, I mean, I, that's what we say. That's what we say we believe in the Word of God. That is critical that we get that down, and that we actually, if we say we believe that, that we really do use the Bible, God's Word, Scripture, 
as the source, the final authority for all that we believe is true or not, and that we live it. That means it is critical that we know the Word of God, that we do what it says, that we believe it. Now, I, I found this quote, too, from Charles Spurgeon. I believe certain doctrines because God says they're true. And the only authority I have for their truth is the Word of God. Have you ever said something that's true and somebody may say, well, why do you believe that's true? And they would say, well, you, you would say, because the, the Bible says it is. Okay, but really, I mean, so Why? Or, or this is what the Bible says, and this is what it says we should do. Okay, why should we do that? Well, we try, well, it's a good thing, it's being obedient, but simply because it's what the Bible says. Sometimes we feel like we have to go beyond that. No, we don't. Sir, we believe what the Bible says, that God says is true, doctrines and all the rest, and the only authority we have for that truth is the Word of God. That's okay, folks. That's all we need. In fact, we don't have to have any more answer than that. And we need to grab hold of the truth of the Word of God because it is absolutely critical that we obey it, that we know it, that we believe it, that we obey it. It's, it's real simple. And, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Now, this morning, uh, I've titled the message, you know if you're here last week or if you're following with us or l looking online that we talked about the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'll review that in just a minute. But today, we're going to look at this idea, what does the Bible say about marriage and divorce? And I would put a title for you that simply says, till death do us part. Till death do us part. I hope if you are married here this morning that those were part of your vows because that's what the Bible says. Marriage is till death do us part. And uh, we're going to look at that. So open your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, we're going to start at verse 10, verses 10 to 16 as we, as we look at these. And... Uh, I'm not going to read through them initially here for you because we're going to go through them as we look at our text, but let me quickly review where we were last week. And what we simply said uh, in the first nine verses, we titled those first nine verses, Sex and Marriage. That's what we talked about. Uh, somebody put um, a completely anonymous question into my box this week, and I'm not going to take the time to answer it publicly for you except to say... Hey, you know who you are, and you wrote that question, so I'll say until you can't, all right? And we'll leave it at that. If you want to know more, call me, text me, email me, whatever, and, and I'll, I'll talk with you more about it. But here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and last week, the, basically the key of what we talked about were the first two verses. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. And as we went through those nine verses, simply put, here's some highlights. This, first of all, is not Paul's complete teaching on marriage. This is an answering a question that was asked. This is 
correction, corrective teaching on Paul's part. And, and if you want to look at a more thorough understanding of what the Bible says about marriage and what Paul teaches about marriage, look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. And you'll find that out. Then we looked at the, the truth. If you are married, sexual abstinence is not an option. God didn't make us husband and wife to abstain. And we talked about that, why that was critical. And part of that, don't give Satan an opportunity to weasel his way into your marriage and create division and conflict and arguing and strife and tension and all the rest. That's what happens when we don't follow God's plan. And here, this would be my concluding statement about these verses, and this is critical. And this is for all of us, not just married people. It's for all of us. Simply put, marriage is God's only provision. Only provision. It is the only place for sexual pleasure and fulfillment. That is a statement that is absolutely not believed in our culture and society today. No way. And folks, it is critical that we as believers, we who know the truth, understand what the Bible says. And that's what the Bible says. The only place in marriage for sexual pleasure and fulfillment. Now, I mentioned last week too, singleness. I'll mention a little bit of that today, but Next week, we will deal with the rest of chapter 7, and we will talk about singleness. But Paul's letter here in verses 10 to 16, as we mentioned, is an occasional response, not once in a while occasional, but response at a specific occasion, a specific question that the church in Corinth was asking Paul. And as we said last week, the first nine verses in their teaching about marriage, this is not a marriage manual. Again, it is statements of correction. It is teaching on specific questions related to marriage, not every answering every question there is about marriage. So understand that. And so just as that was true of the first nine verses, that it's not a marriage manual, verses 10 to 16 are not intended to be a divorce manual. And we're going to see that as we work through the text this morning. Sometimes it's viewed that way. The only, Paul wrote, the only reason why Paul wrote chapter 7 is to talk about marriage and divorce. And, and that's not the case. This, these aren't all the teaching that is in Scripture about these two issues. He's answering questions. He's seeking to correct misunderstanding and wrong behavior that the church at Corinth had. Now, I, I want to make a statement here. I, I want you to, I, I need your complete attention. I need you to listen to what I have to say because as we jump into this text on divorce this morning, marriage and divorce, you need to know this. Listen to me. If you are divorced and or remarried, please, our time together this morning is not in any way intended to be critical or condemning of you. It's not why we're here. We need to know what the Bible teaches. Um, this is not directed personally at you. I'm sure I don't even know all of your marital backgrounds. I, yes, I know some and many. 
But, but that's not the point. The reason we're going through this this morning, we're teaching because it's part of the word of God. It's part of the truth that God gives us. And it is absolutely applicable to our society today. So please listen carefully. It is the next text. It is the next group of verses in 1 Corinthians 7. And we're moving right through 1 Corinthians. It all works together. And that's why we're dealing with it. So listen carefully with an open heart and mind to what the Bible says. What the Bible says. Keep your heart and your mind open to the Spirit of God moving. Stay with me until we're finished, all right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. To the married, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, here we go. I mean, we're just right into it, all right? That's what Scripture says. That's what the Bible says. That's the truth we need to live by. To the married, that you know who you are, Right? And, and Paul says, I give this command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's not an opinion. He says, I give this command. It's imperative. And then he says, not I, but the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is, listen, he's, I'm repeating what Jesus has already said. The Lord has already taught on this subject. He's given us direction in the Bible. Back in the Gospels, Jesus taught about that. And so that's what, not I, but this is what the Lord said. This is what Jesus taught about divorce. And he says, a wife must not separate from her husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. Those two words are, are synonymous here in our text. Please do not, when you see separate, do not think of what we have today, legal separations or informal separations or agreed upon separations. I, I want to say to you, I, I understand that a separation as we understand it today, if it happens, ought to be for an hour or two or a day or two at the most. Because that's not what God says, how we solve marital issues. All right? So the word here that Paul uses, separate and divorce, same word, synonymously. And Paul says, if, as he, look at the text, verse, verse, and if she does, what? If she does separate from her husband, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then a husband must not divorce his wife. So the idea for a husband, husband and a wife, he's, Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. He's talking to a husband and a wife who both have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are saved people, born again people. And he's saying to each of them, do not get divorced. But if you do, but if you do, and Paul would have been talking about the church in Corinth, he knew that that would happen. It probably already had happened. Remember, Paul's writing to a church that is three to four years old in the Lord. 
Some of these believers may have only been a year old when they were hearing, hearing this, had questions, they had misunderstandings. And Paul says, if you do separate or get divorced, be divorced, you have two options. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. Some would say literally that Paul is saying, remain unmarried so that you can be reconciled to your spouse. And why? Because that's what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus said. Again, we say, well, why, why does Paul say this? this? Not I, but the Lord. Because this is what Jesus taught. Uh, taught what? That we, we as believers, as husbands and wives, as spouses, should not separate, should not get divorced. And if we do, we're to remain unmarried or be reconciled. Now, let me tell you what Jesus said. And if you want to look at the text, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. He talks about it in Mark. He talks about it in Luke. But here in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 8, and he is referring, I believe, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Write down Deuteronomy chapter 24 and read through it later on, especially the first four verses. But read through it at another time. But Jesus is making reference to what was said in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some of the Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, Jesus says, all right, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Haven't you read that? That's in Deuteronomy, it's in the Pentateuch, it's in the books of the law, it's in the books of Moses. That's how they would have recognized that Old Testament teaching. Have you not read? For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You know, that's, that's not in every wedding ceremony anymore you understand that people don't want to say that what God has joined together let no one separate but that's what Jesus taught and when he says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife they will become one flesh you may have heard it put leave and cleave Leave your father and mother, both husband and wife, leave your father and mother and cleave, be joined, be glued to one another. What we're talking about here is a change of loyalty. When you first hear that, that may sound, well, wait a minute, man, I'm not loyal to my parents anymore. No, of course you are. You honor your mother and father all of your life. But when a man and a woman get married, they are now more loyal to their spouse, to one another, than they were to their mom and dad. That's just the way God intended it. I left my mom and dad. Jane left her mom and dad. And we became one, and our loyalty is now above our parents. It is now to one another. It has been for 46 years. 
That's what Paul is teaching. That's what Jesus said. Verse 7 of Matthew 19. The Pharisees again asked, Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted. Notice, he changes the word. He doesn't answer the question the way the Pharisees asked it because that's not what Moses said. Moses did not command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. He said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Listen, she hung red scripture this morning from Genesis chapter 2. That's God's plan for marriage. There's no question about it. It began all the way back then. Jesus is repeating it again here. It was repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, no, God didn't command a certificate of divorce. He permitted it. So understand this when we read that. Um, he permitted, not commanded, not required, not encouraged. Jesus did not encourage divorce, not recommended. That's not what he did. Moses permitted why? Because of hard hearts. Hard hearts. And the heart is still today the problem when marriages struggle and when they dissolve. It's still the heart of husband and or wife. That's the problem. And it is critical that we understand that. James chapter 4 and verse 1. James said, uh, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from in you? That's why we have divorce. Because the problem comes in us. The problem starts in the heart. And what we've said so often is what's going on internally in our hearts will show itself externally. It has to. It will Jesus said that out of the fullness of what's in your heart, the mouth will speak. It will come out. It will show itself, not just in the words you say, but in the life you live. And again, this was an occasional letter. And these new believers were wondering, just like they wondered about a sexual relationship, should we, should we separate from that? Should we abstain? They, as part of that same thing, they're saying, so should we stay apart from it? Should we get divorced? Will that help us to be that much more spiritual and that much more Christ-like? And Paul's answer is absolutely no. Stay together. That's God's design. His intent is not to be divorced or separated. His intent is to stay together forever. Forever. You may say, well, what about the exception clause? And if you're reading ahead in Matthew 19, you'd get to verse 8, and you'd see that what, what Jesus says about uh, except for sexual immorality. Listen, we're not going to go there this morning because Paul doesn't in, in 1 Corinthians 7 because that wasn't the issue. That's not what the problem was for the Corinthian church. The problem was not 
sexual fornication. What Jesus meant in that exception clause when he said for sexual immorality, or you may have a translation that says fornication, he meant unrepentant sexual immorality of all kinds. That's the excuse that he gives or the exception. But that's not what Paul was talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because these people were uninformed about God's plan for marriage. They misunderstood God's plan for marriage. They had hard-hearted reasons for misunderstanding God's plan for marriage. Unbiblical reasons. And Paul is assuming they knew what Jesus had been teaching, and so he says, let me remind you, divorce is not an option. But if you choose to, if you do get divorce, is what he says, you are to remain single or be reconciled so that you can get remarried. Now, folks, if you can see any other meaning from what this text says than what I just explained, please, I'm all ears. If there's any other meaning... I want to learn because I need to know. But that's what Paul is saying, and that's why he's saying it. And you may say, yeah, but. And often, and and I want to be sensitive here, folks. Because this usually strikes home. We were talking, Jane and I, talking with somebody else the other night, a couple that we were visiting, and, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, when... When divorce happens, when it touches close to home, whether it's some kind of a relative or a close friend, all of a sudden we think differently about divorce than we used to. So we even more so need to understand what does the Bible teach. It's critical that we know that. And we always seem to look for first for justification, looking for loopholes, looking for reasons why we can get divorced, rather than understanding, no, that's not Paul's intent in writing 1 Corinthians 7. That wasn't Jesus' intent when he answered the Pharisees in Matthew. The idea is it's not about loopholes. Jesus wants marriages to last forever, and so what he would be saying is the the, the fightings and quarrels come from within you. Deal with them. Repent, both of you. Don't try to convince yourself that your situation is unique, and therefore, because it's that unique, it's okay for you. No, no, if it, God doesn't say it, it, it's not allowable. Paul wasn't writing to the church to cover all the reasons why it's okay to get divorced. That's not the way God intended marriage to be talked about. Let's move on to verse 12. Paul says here in verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Notice up in verse 10, he said, not I, but the Lord. Here he says, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What is Paul saying now? Um, To the rest. Who in the world are the rest? 
he had already talked about up in verse 8 to the unmarried. In verse 10, he said to the married, I mean, who's left? I mean, you're either married or you're not. It's like two groups of people. Who's left? Who's to the rest? Well, we have to look at the context. And we find out. Because as Paul goes through to the rest, he says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer. Verse 13, if a woman has a husband who is not a believer. So who's the rest? Those who are in mixed marriages. I don't mean racially. I don't mean ethnically. I don't mean Jew-Gentile. What Paul is talking about, mixed marriages, is believer-unbeliever. Follower of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus. That's who Paul is talking about. That's who the rest is. And again, this is a letter based on a specific occasion, a question. Was divorce necessary to get out of an unspiritual relationship? Again, these were fairly new believers, and they were wondering, okay, we're married. And, and as, as the gospel came, as Paul planted a church in Corinth, we read about that in Acts chapter 18. Some families were converted. They came to Jesus. Sometimes in a family, it was just one of the spouses that came to Jesus. Just the wife, just the husband. And the other one remained unsaved. The other one remained without Jesus, didn't become a follower of Jesus. Now we had a mixed marriage. We're not talking about marriages that started that way. When a believer knowingly, intentionally, against what God teaches, marries an unbeliever. That's assumed here. In fact, at the end of chapter 7, Paul makes it very clear that you only marry in the Lord. He talks about 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to look at that. Same thing. He says, what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? What communion does light have with darkness? The answer, these are hypothetical questions. None. What in common does a believer have with an unbeliever so that they decide to get married anyway? None. Don't do it. Why? Because God says don't do it. And so what we're not talking about, though, that kind of marriage. We're talking about a marriage where the gospel came to Corinth, the church began, and people got saved. But in some situations, only one of the spouses got saved. The other one remained unsaved. And their question was, okay, if I got saved and my spouse is still unsaved, shouldn't I get a divorce? Because I can't have anything to do with an unsaved person. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when Paul was talking about that. Shouldn't have, and Paul says, no. We talked about the immorality in, in chapter 6. Sihong preached about that. But, but what Paul is saying is no. And the question again would have been, well, won't we be defiled by being related, by being married to an unsaved person? Shouldn't we get divorced so that we're not connected with an unbeliever and therefore can defile our marriage and defile our kids? And Paul says, no, do not do that. Now, that's what the Bible says. You see, we talk about this exception. We have the exception that we mentioned back in Matthew chapter 19, unrepentant sexual immorality, cause for divorce. Or here we talk about another exception. We talk about desertion. But understand, desertion, clause, exception, is only between a believer and an unbeliever. 
And it's only as we read the text when the unbeliever says, I'm out of here. It is not when the believer says, because my spouse is unsaved, because they are not a follower of Jesus, I'm out of here. No, Paul says. Look at it again. Look at the text. That's what Paul is, is, is telling us. When he says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Can you give me any other explanation than what I just shared with you? That's as black and white as it gets. He, he goes on, verse 13, and if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him again. What else does that mean? It means what it says. As literal as Paul can be, that's what it means. Why? Well, we could say because God says so. But he goes on and does more than that. He says, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And you may say, what in the world does that mean? You mean just because one of the spouses is a believer and they stay together and don't get divorced, the other spouse will automatically become a believer? No, that's not what it's teaching. Or the kids will become believers? They're holy. They're sanctified. Is that what he's teaching? No, absolutely not. We know that faith is the, is, is the way, faith, belief in what Jesus Christ did, trust in God and what Jesus did on the cross. That's the only way a person is saved, not just because we hang out with Christian people or a Christian spouse or a Christian parent. You say, so what's he saying? Well, it's simply this. It's to be set apart. That's what that word sanctify means but set apart and as a result receives that unsaved spouse, those unsaved kids are set apart by that saved spouse or saved parent and receive the benefit of the parent's righteousness. There's an opportunity, yes, for them to know truth, but God views them. They are going to receive the benefits of the saved spouse's righteousness. You say, really? Yeah, a couple examples. Joseph, you remember Joseph? Joseph in the Old Testament, not Joseph and Mary. Joseph in the Old Testament, one of the sons of Jacob, who was sold to the Midianites, who ended up second in command in Egypt under Pharaoh. Well, meanwhile, on that journey, when he, be, he went to Potiphar's house, and uh, usually we only think of when, when he resisted temptation to sleep with Potiphar's wife, but before all of that, before he got in trouble with Potiphar for doing the right thing, what we find out is that in verse, and if you want to check it out, Genesis chapter 39, read the story. But specifically verse 5, it talks about Potiphar acknowledges how that God blessed his household because of Joseph, the righteousness of Joseph. You could look at the same thing if you'd go back to Abraham. If you remember the story in Genesis 18, when Abraham was interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah before God, God, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare those cities? God said, okay. God, how about less five, 45? Okay, how about 40? Okay. How about 30? God, don't get upset with me, but all right, how about 20? 
God says, for the sake of 20 righteous people, I will not destroy those cities. Abraham says, all right, Lord, I, just one more time I got to ask, please don't get mad at me. Please don't be upset. But how about if there's only 10 righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you spare those cities instead of destroying them because of the righteousness of those 10 people? God said, yes, I will. But there were not even 10 righteous people. What did Abraham know? He knew that God would bless the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of the righteousness of the believers that were there. That's the principle. That's the way it works. It is not a guarantee that the unsaved spouse will come to know Jesus. It is not a guarantee that the unsaved children will come to know Jesus, but they will receive the benefit of the righteousness of that believing individual. That is so much why even more so the believer in that marriage needs to be close to God. Critical. Verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. Here's the exception. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Listen, in a mixed marriage like that, there will be strife. There will be tension. There will be stress because of the relationship that the believing spouse, the follower of Jesus has with that unbelieving spouse. And as the children get older, sometimes with the children as well. But Paul's teaching, and when he said, this is what I say, not the Lord, doesn't mean that what he says is any less authoritative. The reason he says that is because Jesus didn't teach on that subject. Jesus never taught about a mixed marriage. So when Paul says, I, not the Lord, he means, all right, let me give you some truth, and it's in God's word, and it's every bit as authoritative as what we have in Matthew 19 that Jesus said. So understand, that's the point. So this has every bit as much authority as any other part of the Word of God that we have. And if you're a follower of Jesus in a mixed marriage, recognize that you are the one that God could use to bring that unsaved spouse and children to Christ. You. And again, can you see any other meaning? Let me wrap this up. Listen, the testimony of the church is a serious matter. Just like unity, just like purity, this is critical because marriages can weigh on not a good testimony for God's church. So, if you're single, here's how I'd conclude this morning. If you're single, your decision about divorce needs to be made before you get married, not when your marriage gets difficult. If you're single and you're, you're planning to get divorced, thinking about get, excuse me, planning to get married, thinking about getting married, you make your decision about divorce now, before you get married, before you even begin a relationship, not when your marriage gets difficult. 
That's critical. Marriage is not an option. Secondly, next, yeah. If you are divorced and have been remarried unbiblically or divorced unbiblically, and what I mean by that is what we just said, the, it, it wasn't for unrepentant sexual immorality or it wasn't because you were in a mixed marriage and, and you chose to leave not the unsaved spouse. Then that's, those, are not un, those are unbiblical reasons. And again, please, that's what the Bible says. So here's what you do. You confess that as sin because it is not continuous sin. It is not continuous immorality. So you confess your sin as a husband or wife. If you're both believers, as both of you, you welcome God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, if we say the same thing about our sin that God does, and we just saw what God says, and we please God in our marriage from this point forward. And then lastly, if you're in a difficult marriage, if it's, if it's a mixed marriage, if it's two believers that are struggling, it's a difficult marriage. And we know there are. God has chosen you to be the potential person to impact your spouse's spiritual life. If they're unsaved, but look at it both ways. If you're two believers, God's chosen you to be the one who can impact that person's spiritual life. I will tell you, God has used Jane many times in 46 years to help me to grow and become more like Jesus. That's the way it works. And, and we need to recognize that. But if it's a mixed marriage and you're the saved spouse, God could use you. God may want you in that very situation to reach your spouse for Christ. Wow. How about that? Boy, I wish I could elaborate. I, maybe some other time. Don't make your spouse's relationship with God the test of your commitment to them. I came across that statement elsewhere. Wish I could say I made that up, but that's a great statement because that's what we tend to do. We make our relationship with our spouse, we make that, we allow that to become uh, a commitment. Our test, don't make your spouse's relationship with God, I'll get this right. Don't make your spouse's relationship with God the test of your commitment because they're not related to God that ought not to lessen our commitment to them. That's what that means. And then lastly, if it's a difficult marriage, understand this, it's impossible for a Christian husband and wife to provide a model of reconciliation to the world if they cannot reconcile with each other. Because our marriages are a picture of the relationship of Christ to the church, or the relationship of Jesus Christ to us. And our marriages are to picture that relationship, and if they don't, how can we talk to people who don't know Jesus and tell them, you need Jesus? 
This is Paul's teaching on marriage and divorce. Now, we haven't answered every single question that you have, I know. But I hope that you'll take to heart what Paul has said. If you're single, if you've been unbiblically divorced and remarried, the responsibility to confess it and grab hold of God's forgiveness because he's ready with arms wide open. And those of you in mixed marriages or just simply a believing difficult marriage, it's about our walk with God. That's what it is. It's not about what our spouse does or doesn't do. It's about what we in our walk with God choose to do, period. Well, but you don't, doesn't matter. When we say more people, more like Jesus, that's what we're talking about. Father, thank you for your truth. Father, these are hard times for God's people. I pray that we'd grab hold of the truth that you've given to us, the only truth, the truth without option. Believe it, live it, obey it. God, I pray for those who are struggling today whatever the circumstance, the situation that they're in in their marriage that we've just talked about today, oh God, bring them to yourself. Help them to choose to be more like Jesus. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.